Welcome. Welcome, everyone. We'll, we'll go ahead and get started so we can get out, uh, do this in good time. Um, this uh, is a commemoration um, ceremony. It's kind of hard to find the right words to describe what we're, what we're doing today. It's, um, it's not a memorial. Um, it, it is a way of remembering and, and connecting with a past event and trying to bring it uh, and connect with it in a, in a particular kind of way. Um, you'll notice as you came in that you were given a small votive candle and um, a wristband. Um, that wristband we're going to save for the end. There'll be a time where we can, uh, we'll all have a time to put these on together as, in a show um, of solidarity. If you look at the wristband, you'll see that the day says April 6th on it. Um, anybody that, that knows their history, uh, Rwandan history, knows that actually the, the genocide, the, the, the killing in, in Rwanda started on April 7th. Tomorrow morning is the day that, that the genocide is observed as the official starting date. So you might ask, why do I have April 6th on there? I have April 6th on there because I'm trying to take a step away from the idea that the, the, the Rwandan genocide was something that came out of the blue. The, the killing in, in Rwanda came from a plan. And that plan started in earnest on April 6th with the, with the shooting down of the plane in, uh, over the Kigali airport. Uh, president Javier Imana and the, and the president of Burundi, or Prime Minister of Burundi, were also in that, in that plane. And that plan didn't come out of the blue either. That plan was part of an ideology of fear that had been building in Rwanda for many, many years. Since 1992, 1990, if you go back, you can go back into the 70s, and you'll see that that ideology of fear, which bred a hatred of a particular people, is not only connected to an ideology, but it's also connected to an exploitation, which is a, it's a route that even goes deeper into the history of, of Rwanda and Africa, and especially the, the West's relationship to, to this small Central African country. So in a way, to put a date on this bracelet is arbitrary, because the genocide in Rwanda was coming for many, many years before it actually started on the 7th, which is tomorrow morning. I want you to have the bracelet in your, in your possession tomorrow morning, uh, so we're having this ceremony, this, uh, this commemoration this afternoon so that we can start remembering that the plan is connected to something bigger. What I'm asking you to do though, however, in 1994 most of you were just babies, two or three years old, maybe a little bit older but not much, some of you even younger. So it's difficult to see what your attachment to this story would be in 1994 and it's, you don't even remember what you were doing in 1994. What I'm asking us to do today is to actually to think of ourselves as attaching ourselves to a story, attaching ourselves to a piece of history that we can choose to either embrace or we can choose to ignore. What happens when you choose to include yourself in this event is there is a certain weight and a burden that comes with knowing and learning about the genocide in Rwanda. Because when you expand your circle and when you include atrocity in the circle of your experience in your life, that can feel very heavy, and that can feel very weighty. But it is also very important, because as that pain that you feel when you feel the weight of the genocide in Rwanda is also the pain that the, what's happening is that you are expanding. And when you expand, you grow your capacity to take on more of the world. 
So what we're doing today, and what I'm asking you is to put this on at the end of this ceremony and to feel the weight of this small, light wristband and to feel what this does for you and the way that you are, may feel guilty, you might feel frustrated, you might feel hopeless, but none of those are, are really, the, the, what the pain that you're feeling is actually the pain of your capacity expanding. We're going to have a few different things that are going to uh, be a part of our, our ceremonies today. We're going to be visited uh, through the wonders of science with Carl Wilkins, who I'll introduce a little later. Um, and we're going to also have some, um, some video time where we'll look at a ceremony um, from the 15th uh, commemoration ceremony in Kigali, which I, and along with Carl, was fortunate enough to be at. Um, and uh, so we'll look at that. But I would really like us to start out with trying to enter into the world of the Rwandan uh, genocide. I'm not going to talk to you about the details of why it happened or, or um, muddy the waters with that because you can do a lot of this work on your own. I want us to um, really start to immerse ourselves in, in what it might have felt like to be here. And so I want to start today with, um, with a testimony. This is a testimony from a survivor of, um, uh, of genocide. It is going to be reenacted for you by um, a student at Villanova, Amayo Bassi, who's going to do a reenactment of, uh, of a survivor testimony uh, to sort of um, to get us into the moment and get us into the, the feeling of what this might have been like to actually live through this genocide. What did you talk about her that you can't manage? 
Thanks, Amaya. So in that, in that testimony, you get a feel, a little tiny feel, of s what people were forced and thrust into through no choice of their own. And the next part of what I want to do is um, I want to tell you that anyone who knows me knows that I don't have very many heroes in my life. When you study genocide, there are very few heroes that you study. And you usually end up studying people who make tragic errors of judgment. Uh, over and over and over again. But the next, my next guest uh, that I want uh, you to introduce you to is one of my heroes. Um, he's one of those people who did what I hope I could do, um, and I'm not quite sure if I'm the one who could do it. Um, Carl Wilkins is uh, one of those people who did the thing that most of us would dream that we could do in the same situation. Um, by way of introduction, I want to um, show a little, uh, just a short uh, clip that was done. The first time I, I saw Carl Wilkin was actually in a frontline video, call, a frontline uh, documentary called um, The Ghosts of Rwanda. Uh, then I was fortunate enough to meet him uh, a couple of years ago at, in Rwanda at um, the 15th uh, Memorial um, and have been impressed by him uh, ever since. He has, he has used this um, and taken opportunity to this to really take Rwanda as a, a, under his wing and has really uh, turned this into his life's work to, um, to really educate people about what happened in Rwanda, about uh, genocide, and about how we can move forward uh, through genocide into hope and reconciliation. Um, the clip I want to show you right now is uh, from another video that was done called uh, Deny Defying uh, Genocide. And you'll get a good idea of the kind of person he is from this story. wasn't as much the issue as water, because it was very hot and people were sweating and getting dehydrated. They needed to drink, but it was very hard to come by water. There were roadblocks all over the city. They were every hundred meters or so. There were so many bodies from the carnage, from the massacres, that they were even doing roadblocks with the piles of bodies. You understand how difficult it was. But luckily, one day in April, maybe three weeks into the month, it might have been the 20th, Carl Wilkins introduced himself to me. He had heard of an orphanage with children in danger who had nothing. Then I explained our situation to him. Carl Wilkins, perhaps the only American relief worker to stay in Rwanda throughout the genocide, saw his mission to help those in need. I also told him that we had no milk for the newborn babies at the center. He agreed to help me find it. That was something very difficult to find with all the looting and all. 
and we really had no idea where to find milk for the babies. And he managed to find milk and water. One day in late June 1994, Gesimba left the orphanage to look for supplies. That same day, Wilkins arrived with barrels of water and found the orphanage swarming with militia. Their leader was just getting out of his car. I walked over, put my hand out, he brushes right past me. He goes to the young brother, and where's the director? He starts, you know, we want the director. And, and I could pick up occasionally, he'd throw in a French word or so, and uh, then he gets back in his car and he storms off. And the brother tells me, you know, they, uh, they really want to kill my, my older brother today. In fact, they're going to kill all of us. Fearing the worst, Wilkins stayed as long as he could. A few hours later, while the orphanage was still under siege, a group of seven policemen arrived. They advised Wilkins to speak with senior governmental leaders about the fate of the orphanage. You got some, you know, hard decisions here to make because can you trust this man? Some of the police were involved in the killing. Some were saving and protecting people. Um, what do you... What do you do? But it seemed like the only, only route to do was to trust him. The young brother said, no, don't go. They're gonna kill us as soon as you leave. And I said to him, you know, I, I, I promised him. I, I promised him, I'll come back. And so it was with this sick mixture of relief and, and, and dread that I got in my car and um, drove away. Wilkins knew he had to seek help from the most senior Rwandan government official possible. By a stroke of luck, the prime minister was in town. I stood up and I stepped into the middle of the hallway and I put my hand out and I said, Mr. Prime Minister, I'm Carl Wilkins, the director of ADRA. And, um, he stopped and looked at me. Yes, I know you, I've heard of your work. Uh, how's your work going? And I said, well, actually, Mr. Prime Minister, it's not going well at all. I said, I just left the orphans surrounded by militia and I feel there's gonna be a massacre. Um, what else do you say but the truth and what it is? And, uh, and he stopped and he conferred a little bit with someone, someone in his group and he looked back at me and he says, actually, I'm aware of that situation and your orphans will be, will be fine. We will see that they're cared for. So, I mean, uh, those kids could be killed that night and, uh, and people would say, Wilkins went and told the prime minister where these kids were and what was going on. Or he could actually do it, he could protect them. I mean, if somebody had the power in the country to do it, he should have. Gasimba had managed to find sanctuary in a nearby cathedral. As night fell, Neither he nor Wilkins knew if they could trust the assurances from the very government committing the genocide. It was a big disappointment. I kept saying to myself, I did everything that I possibly could, and now it's finished. I will never see my wife, my child again. I will never again see my orphan children. I will never again see any of the others that I tried to save. In a country where murder had become commonplace, 
Those at the orphanage survived another night without an attack. Fortunately, the next day I was told that everyone was still alive. It was a bit of a relief, but I feared that even if they had not died that night, something might happen during the day. Fortunately, after three days had passed, they came to where I was at Saint-Michel. As evacuees from the orphanage arrived at the cathedral, the militias were shocked to see so many adults among the orphans. All of the militias that were there came by. Where did these people come from? They're with Gasimba? Who is this Gasimba? Are you Gasimba? Yes, that's me. What are all these people? They're with me. What's the problem? The hundreds of children and adults that Damas Gasimba had cared for since the beginning of the genocide were rescued on July 1st, 1994. Will you please join me in welcoming, via Skype, Carl Wilkins. Hey Tim, can you hear me okay? You're coming through loud and clear, Carl. Oh, good. Um, thank you guys all for coming out. You know, as I, as I look at the uh, calendar today, for me, the genocide did always start on this day. When, when we heard the explosion of the plane crash, it was probably you know not more than five miles from our house. This is really when um, the gunfire started to increase at night and uh, all hell began to break loose. And, and interestingly enough, this year is the same calendar arrangement as um, last, as 1994. I mean, this is Wednesday and that was Wednesday, April 6, 1994. I want to make sure I'm coming through okay still. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, should I, do you, if we go ahead and um, do a full screen, I'll share a couple of pictures with you all. Sure. I, you, I think you are on full screen. I'm sorry. I mean to, um, to do a share. Uh, but you want, then you have to share on your screen. Yeah. Has, has anything come up there? No. Do you see the share thing down at the bottom? Yeah, I just clicked on that, and I might not take too much, although I'd like you to see some of these pictures. Um, no, I can't, I can't make yours share. You can only, if yours isn't going yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, no, it looked like I chose it, but we'll just, we'll just uh, have to, have to trust that, uh, Now? No, nothing. Okay. I think um, I feel very lucky that we're actually seeing and hearing you at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was um, it was 1990. Teresa and I were just actually in our early 30s. We had um, graduated from college, got married a week later, and six weeks later we moved to Zimbabwe. Our two older daughters were born in Zimbabwe, and um, after six years we came back and I got an MBA. Our son was born then. So when we went to Rwanda in 1990, Sean wasn't even two years old. I think uh, Lisa was about four and Mindy was about seven. And we had, you know, four years of um, a great place for raising kids in Kigali. I mean, the war did begin three years, I mean, six weeks, sorry, six months after we got there. But that, that war didn't seem to be touching Kigali as much. It was ravaging other parts of the country, but not so much Kigali. And then we had peace, 
And so just prior to the plane being shot down, we really believed that um, we were going to have long-term peace in Rwanda. We were going to have a new broad-based government, and um, and we were going to see some some relief from that three years of war. But of course, it wasn't to be. As as you heard earlier, there was a small group of people who really, for several years, have been planning this genocide. And and the the story that I'd like to share with you this evening, in just the next couple of minutes, you watched. Um, Damascus Simba there speaking about the orphanage and the work that was happening there. Well, before I kind of tell you the sequel to that story, um, I want you to know that the second day, that will be tomorrow, Thursday, this are, you know, by some count the first day, but anyway, of the genocide, Thursday, April 7th, we looked out the window of our house and we saw them walking down the street with furniture on their heads from the home they had just looted and as news came trickling to us, we found out from the, uh, they murdered the mother and father at that home. He was um, a banker, used to get up in the morning and get into his late model Audi, a really nice car, and drive off to work. Their children, I believe, were saved in the orphanage next door. But I want to ask you a question, and, and you can do a little homework, some of you at least, to try to figure this out. Um, I've often thought to myself, why did this man who watched international um, television news, a man who you know, followed the financial market around the world, and a man who obviously was in touch with the politics, why was he caught that day boosting his kids over the fence instead of, why hadn't he fled the country already? Why, why was he caught almost apparently unaware when there had been so many signs, when there had already been murders going on? And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize this man, I'm trying to put myself into his shoes. And, and I think one of the reasons he saw the warning signs that he didn't remove his family is because people had a huge trust in the UN presence. They believed that the UN was there to provide security. And that false sense of security proved deadly. So I'm not just trying to, to, to tell a terrible story or to point fingers even at the UN. I just, um, I want us to stop and think, we get involved. Are we listening to the people we're getting involved with? Are we, are we giving the majority of the weight to decision-making matters to the people who are there on the ground? It wasn't just the Rwandan people who were not being listened to but General Dallaire and the, and the soldiers on the ground were not being listened to. And so a terrible, terrible price was paid. But that night, after killing that man and his wife and looting their house, they came to our gate. And, and they would have been inside if it couldn't have been for our neighbors. Those were a couple of pictures I wanted to put on the screen for you of these ladies, grandmas, aunts, who just courageously stood between these guys with their machetes, their clubs with spikes in them, and they they stood up for us. They really put their life on the line. You know, thousands of Hutu people were murdered in the genocide, uh, in addition to the to the hundreds of thousands of Tutsis who were murdered. There were thousands of Hutu people who stood up against the genocide. Our neighbors could have lost their life that night, but they didn't. And the way they turned the killers, at least the best I can understand, the way they turned the killers away, turned them on another path, 
was to tell them stories. They told them stories about our family, about us living there, taking neighbors to the hospital, just small neighborhood deeds. And, and, and they told them, can't go in there. These people's children play with our children. And to me, that still just, it just boggles my mind because I'm thinking, you know, how's that gonna change anybody's mind? Their children play with our children? But somehow, these ladies managed to rehumanize us, to, um, to change us from simply, you know, we didn't have Tootsie ID cards, we weren't on the list to be killed, but we're a target of opportunity. To change us from being a target of opportunity to someone we go past, it, it's, it's amazing. So, so before Teresa and I ever stayed, decided that I would stay, and she and the kids would go, neighbors decided to stand up for us that the the real then core to our decision for me to stay came in the person of the young lady who lived and worked in our home in Tabit. the kids loved her Teresa I loved her we all loved Tabit. such a kind patient thoughtful person just couldn't imagine just leaving her to be murdered and so Teresa and I made that decision, not knowing it was going to be a genocide, not knowing it was going to last for three months, only hoping that we would be able to make a difference for Tabi. And there was a man, a watchman as well, who was part of that decision process. The last thing that I want to share with you is the kind of sequel to the story you are listening to part of um, about Damas and the orphanage. The, the government did those children I don't think they had you know wonderful humanitarian motives but it's not for me to to speculate I mean I I personally think they wanted to use that as human shields but but putting aside they did move those children to another part of town actually only a couple of blocks away from the hotel where the movie hotel that was signed uh, based at Corey was based there but um, they moved the children, but they didn't take their belongings. They didn't let the children grab their blankets or extra clothing. They didn't let any of the staff grab cooking pots or things like that. They just told everybody, out, out, quick. Young lady who was a college student at the time, she was hiding there. She said to me several years later, she we didn't know if we were being rescued or if we were going to be killed because that's what they used to do. They would come with vehicles, load everybody in the vehicles, and take them to the river to kill, taking them to dump for the mass graves. So it was a terrible time for them. When I found them, though, somewhat safe at a church near the Milkling Hotel, I looked around. I said, guys, where's your stuff? They said, they couldn't let us bring it. So I went to the colonel. Colonel is since charged with genocide crimes against humanity. I went to this colonel and I actually had a, a friendship, I guess you would say, some sort of a relation, definitely a working relationship with this man um, to do humanitarian things, of course. And uh, I told him, thanks for moving the orphans. They need their stuff. Would you write me a letter authorizing me to uh, to go collect their thing. 
So he grabbed, you know, a pen, he really writes out a letter, and then he goes and gets a signature and a stamp on it, hands me the letter, and um, I folded it, put it in my pocket, drove out to the orphanage. When I got there to the left, a lot of sniper gunfire. The place was deserted. It was it had been teeming with people, but now it's like a ghost town. So I said to my Rwandan friend, uh, Andrew worker, I said, let's go around to the right. So we went around to the right. We came face to face with a gang of militia. The lead, like we knew very well, and about 12 of these guys with machine guns, they were looting the orphanage. It was um, pathetic to me when you stop and think. And, and I was, I mean, they were shocked, but I was terrified. Then I remembered that letter. I reached out in my pocket and I pulled out the letter and handed it to the, to the commander or the leader of the gang. He read the letter and then he says, of course, the orphans need their belongings. And he turns to his guys with their guns and he says, help him load his truck. I was so shocked. Walked inside the dormitory with this new volunteer group behind me. Say, guys, if you'll just if you'll just put blankets on the floor and put clothing or whatever you find, tie the blankets shut, bring them up to the truck. They've got a blanket of orphan stuff on one shoulder, a machine gun on the other shoulder. My truck was too small. They helped me get a bigger truck. It had little sides. Say, guys, will you help me grab this table? And so one of the guys is on one end, I'm on the other end. We stand the tables on end so that we could make the truck really tall. And these guys started sharing their ideas of how to do the work. The serve we involved in was changing us. It was changing definitely the way I was thinking about them. And I was thinking it's probably changed the way they think about me. So I think you completely understand why I'm so passionate about two things in order to build peace and to stop genocide. One of them is the power of stories. Statistics aren't gonna do it. Governments, soldiers, mandates, as important as they can be, they're not gonna do it. It's gonna be stories, that stories will build relationships. Stories will connect us. The second thing is service. When we, when we engage our minds and our muscles in acts of service, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes the way we think of others. And so those are two things I'll leave with you this evening. I thank you so much for coming here. And uh, you know, I was with the survivor yesterday. You hear that noise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that. Okay. I, I, I don't know. It's not some sort but of anyway. warning noise or anything like that. Uh, I was I was with the survivor yesterday, um, and, and he's visiting the states right now. He was only ten at the time that his mother and father were killed, and and his story is incredible. But what really touched me, in addition to his powerful story and his courage, was the compassion he has for the children of the murderers. I'm thinking, you know, somebody else could take the time to 
trying to step into the shoes of the children of the murderers. But here we have somebody who was a child at the time who had many of his family murdered, and he's speaking empathetically about the difficult role of the children of the murderers. He's telling me about the number of divorces after the genocide, where, you know, in Rwanda, Hutus and Tutsis married each other all the time. But after the genocide, there were divorces because of how do you live again with, with the huge guilt and the shame and the bitterness. And, and so I'm not only inspired by the courage of the people like my neighbors who stood up against the genocide, but I continue to be inspired by the courage of people like Emmanuel who show compassion and empathy for the children of the killers. I get, you can probably figure I could go on and on with stories, but I'll stop. I thank you very, very much for coming tonight. Thank you, Carl. You know, for all for all the limits of uh, of Skype and technology, there are a few minutes where a few seconds where I really thought you were here. So that's uh, it's great. It was a very good connection. We we heard everything you said. So it was, uh, it was wonderful to to get uh, to get your perspective on it. I'm, you're gonna I'm gonna reduce you so that you can still see us and stay with us, even though he's going to be off the screen. He's still on the camera here and is going to be with us and has been with us for the whole uh, commemoration. So. Carl, thanks very much. All right. Um, the, the next part of what I want to do, actually, is uh, the, the ceremony part where we are going to be, and this is where I need my CRS uh, ambassadors to help. Um, I've been really helped a lot with the CRS ambassadors here on campus to help do the, a lot of the logistics, and uh, Victoria was also had some great ideas about that. This is a really kind of a new emerging thing on campus, and so I'm really thankful, thankful for their help here to, to do this. Um, uh, do you have the sign-up sheet, Victoria? Do you want me to mention this now before we do this at the end? Oh, okay, okay. Um, at the end of the ceremony, I think I want to end with, with silence. I don't necessarily want to have a lot of announcements at the end, so I'm going to do this now, um, is that uh, at the end, uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to watch a video. Uh, the, the video that they showed actually in Kigali Stadium, uh, in, in the soccer stadium, the National Soccer Stadium. Carl and I were sitting there. We weren't sitting together. Um, I was sitting way off on my own, and he was, I don't know where he was, but I know he was there. Um, and so and this was the video that was prepared by uh, Aegis, which is a British um, um, NGO that works with uh, genocide awareness. Uh, and we will go around and uh, the CRS volunteers will help us to light the candle uh, that you have. And at the end of this, we will all extinguish our flame. And at that point, we will transfer the light of that hope and that promise. And then we can put on the wristbands. Okay? I invite you to wear the wristbands for 100 days uh, as a kind of Lent. It has become my Lent um, that I wear a, a purple uh, a ribbon, or this year I'll wear a wristband for a hundred days to, to be mindful of the length of time that, that this genocide took and the intensity. If you would like to sign up after to give your email address um, on a sign-up sheet, I will put together a distribution list and I will periodically through the hundred days send you an update uh, about what was happening during the genocide, about what was happening on this day or that day, uh, significant events that, that happened to, to help you to be mindful of what was, what was happening uh, there as well. So you don't have to do that if you don't want to, but if you want to keep track of that, 
uh, I I'll be doing that. You could just give me your email and we'll get a distribution list together. So, so I'm going to start the video, which we will watch. And then, uh, and while this is going on, if the CRS volunteers could, uh, could start with this as well. And look who's starring in this. Three years ago, I went to visit Rwanda, and I saw the mass graves of thousands of people who had been killed, and I saw photographs of thousands of people who were in those graves, and they had such hope and joy and thoughtfulness in their eyes, and I have never forgotten them. The tragedy of Rwanda for a while, people completely forgot the humanity of their neighbors. People who'd lived side by side for generations. People familiar with each other, who knew each other well as human beings. Suddenly forgot other people were human beings. Fifteen years after the tragic events in Rwanda, I hope the world has learned a terrible lesson. A terrible lesson that should never be repeated. In today, as we light candles of hope, it's an opportunity for the world to turn its face towards Rwanda. For some people, 15 years is a long time. But for those of us who were in Rwanda during the genocide, it seems like yesterday. There are sights and there are sounds, memories that will be with us for the rest of our life. And yet, so will the memories of those who courageously stood up, those who put others first people who didn't think about their own well-being, and they stood. Their presence, the power of their presence, constantly inspires me. I've often said that God loves to bring good out of bad. He loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. And I think it would be just like God to take the nation of Rwanda, a small nation that the entire world turned its back on when it needed the world the most. And God says, I want to bless the world through this country. There is an overwhelming hopefulness that I, that you, anyone traveling to Rwanda has sort of hit by as soon as you exit the plane. That is a, a hopefulness that comes from a community of people who know what the darkest depths of hell can be. And are determined to come out of that stronger and more compassionate. When I think back to what happened in Rwanda during the genocide, I think of the women and what they went through, the, the horrors that they had to experience, the pain. And I, I'm very inspired by the courage and resilience. In traveling to Rwanda, I've been amazed at the capacity of the Rwandese people to forgive, to come together, to rebuild, to start anew. You've chosen to live your life not for vengeance, but for hope. I believe that if you and those like you can do that, then I think all of Rwanda can do that. The people of Rwanda are rebuilding bravely and prayerfully and hopefully at the moment. And our prayers and our thoughts are with them. Their process of healing not only involves the Rwandan people, but it also involves all of us if we are part of the human experience and the human family. This gentle moment 
can remember, that we can also remember the people who are left and support them with everything we have. I light my candle here tonight in honor of those who survived and those who did not. I light a candle in memory of the survivors. I light a candle in memory of the light in the hearts of those who need forgiveness. And I light a candle in hopes of the peace for the future of our children. I light this candle as a sign of hope. Let this candle be a symbol of light, of hope, joy, truth against the backdrop of the darkness of the human experience. Let this candle be a reminder that a single spark can send the darkness on the road. Cette flamme cesse de cesse de brûler. Il faut qu'on se souvienne de tous nos frères qui sont qui sont partis et les conditions dans lesquelles ils sont partis. C'est important de de ne pas oublier notre passé. C'est important de se rappeler de notre passé pour éviter de commettre à nouveau des, des erreurs qui ont été commises dans, dans, dans le futur. To all those missing souls and to the ones that are now in another place. My name is Rosanna. I'm 17 years old from London and I light a candle of hope for Rwanda. My name is Christina. I'm 23 years old. I'm from the United States and I'm lighting a candle of hope for Rwanda.
my name is Lisa. I'm 21. I'm from Slovakia. Hi, my name is Tina. I'm, I'm 23 years old. I'm from Germany. And I'm my name is Tina. I'm 14 years old. I'm from Paris, France. Hello, my name is Will. I'm 17 years old. I'm from the United States. Hello, my name is Chris. I'm Chris. Hello, my name is Ola. I'm Isabella. I'm 15 years old and I live in Sweden. And I am lighting a candle of hope for Rwanda. I'm from Canada. And I'm lighting a candle. My name is Holly. I'm 16. I'm from New Zealand, and I just lit a candle for a while. My name is Lula, and I'm from Germany, and I'm 